welcome to the Health Trust Candid Conversation Podcast. I'm Jason Braithwaite, Senior Director of Clinical Pharmacy Services at Health Trust. This is a conversation series where we highlight physicians, clinicians, and supply chain leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. Today, we're highlighting a portion of the COVID-19 vaccine webinar where we discuss components of Operation Warp Speed, such as vaccine trials, a phased approach to distribution, and the framework for equitable allocation of the vaccine. If you're looking for an in-depth discussion about COVID-19 vaccines, the advancing technology that created them, and logistics around delivery, this is the conversation for you. This is valuable information you can take back to your friends, family, and coworkers. I uh, appreciate all of those in attendance today. Um, it's hard to believe that just 11 months ago, we knew very little about this novel coronavirus. Uh, Dr. Young, I think, has done a great job of, of discussing the national impacts uh, from the virus, from a social, physical, and, and a mental state as well. Um, not, to, not to discount the impact that that's having, but I want to take a few minutes today to, to kind of focus on the treatments that we've been able to develop and the fact that we have three um, EUA um, treatment therapies approved. We have four vaccines in phase three clinical trials, two of which Dr. Young already mentioned, Pfizer and Moderna are, are quick on the heels of, a, of an FDA submission. And so how did we get here today? Um, and I want to just kind of outline a, a group known as Operation Warp Speed and the impact that, that this group's had on uh, being able to collaborate with multiple entities. You can see HHS, CDC, NIH, and many others. Uh, also not listed here is the collaboration with the pharmaceutical manufacturers. Um, they have uh, obviously very uh, important goals. Each one of them has their own silo, but they've broken down walls and been able to work together uh, to produce, I think, what is um, has been a feat. And if you look at some of what they've set out to do, 300 million doses by January 2021, um, I think obviously all of us knew that was a lofty goal to begin with. Um, we're, we're likely not going to hit that at this point, but, but we are making significant impact and improvement and uh, pending some of the FDA results that are, are expected to um, come out in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, we, we should be able to see uh, a fraction at least of that coming to the market by that 2021 uh, date. I think of importance here to call out is that there was $10 billion of what I'll call pre-buy vaccination um, that, that they have uh, sent out to the, the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers to be able to produce vaccine ahead of time. And this is key uh, to be able to produce these things um, at less risk or they're de-risking the impact on these manufacturers. And I'm going to touch on that just a little bit, um, but that's, that's been such a key to be able to expedite this process um, of, of Operation Warp Speed. So a lot of questions have come up, and I think one of the things that, that society is asking right now is, um, how did we get here so fast? Um, if you look at a typical process, for a vaccination, um, you can see along the top here, 
we average about six years to produce a vaccine. Um, the fastest one to date was, was the mumps vaccine was done in about four years. Um, many times you can see it go over 10 years. Um, but you can see that in a typical process, it's a very longitudinal process. There's very little overlap that occurs within this. There are specific time frames, and there's even dead times in between these different studies and different clinical trials of, uh, of data evaluation. Uh, there's long periods of FDA approval timelines and also long manufacturing timelines. All of that equates to six years on average, for example, of producing a vaccine. In this Operation Warp Speed accelerated process, you, you can take a look here. Um, I think this is a key part of, of what we need to be educating not only our own providers on, but also um, our patient population is there is not cutting of corners. Uh, there is efficiencies that are built into this process. So you can see many times a phase one and a phase two study are going to be performed um, at the same time in parallel. Um, at the same time, you can see the brown line here um, in the accelerated process. Manufacturing uh, started ramping up months and months ago in order to prepare to have vaccines ready. Uh, in a normal, typical process, no manufacturer would begin manufacturing that early in the process uh, for fear if they did not pass a clinical trial or things were delayed, there would be significant waste as part of that process. So in short, if you look at the way the accelerated process works, we still have phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. We still have an FDA review process, and we still have the manufacturing components, but a lot of those are occurring in concert with, with each other, in parallel to each other, instead of the longitudinal uh, typical process of vaccine production. Um, one thing I want to make sure before you know we jump off of this topic is uh, right in the middle there, there's a, that red section that talks about a typical FDA review process. In a normal FDA process, the, the companies would take months and months putting together a literal library of the studies, the kinetic and pharmacodynamic aspects of the, of the drug, and submit that to the FDA. Uh, oftentimes, the FDA would take 12 months or more to be able to produce a response. Uh, and, and a difference here is that the FDA is receiving ongoing, real-time data from these studies um, as it occurs. And that's another key aspect to cutting down on the timeline for the, the production of these vaccines. So now that we've kind of talked about how we've been able to get here so quickly, I do want to touch on the, the vaccine candidates, specifically in phase four or phase three, excuse me, there are four of them in phase three. Um, there are, are a countless number out there in production uh, worldwide. Um, but I do want to take a few minutes here to discuss some of the, the variations of these vaccines. It's important to understand that these are not interchangeable vaccines. Um, you can't, you're not supposed to use one dose uh, of, of, say, a Pfizer and then jump to a Moderna. Uh, they have different mechanisms of action as, as spelled out here. 
Um, they also have different um, amounts of patients in their studies. So Pfizer and Moderna have both uh, indicated that they have surpassed uh, the 30,000 patient mark uh, in their studies at this point. Um, I'll point out that Janssen or Johnson & Johnson uh, does have a, a much larger pre-planned population for their study. Some of that goes into their potential for going for a one-dose versus a two-dose vaccine. Looking at the dosing, uh, you know, the three candidates in the first three columns are all a two-dose series, with Pfizer being 21 days apart and uh, Moderna and AstraZeneca 28 days apart. Uh, with Janssen um, offering the only one in phase three with a one-dose solution at this point. Um, they're all in multi-dose vials. They're all requiring a cold chain, but varying levels of cold chain requirement. Uh, if you look at Pfizer's, they're going to be stored in a negative 60 to negative 80 degrees Celsius. Moderna in a uh, still at a frozen temperature at around negative 20 degrees. And then AstraZeneca and Janssen expected to be stored at uh, refrigerated temperatures. Um, obviously that plays into the cold chain, into the ability of you to vaccinate your uh, healthcare workers, your patient populations, and we'll get into a little bit more of that in detail in just a moment. Before we jump into the details, I'm not going to dive far into the mechanism of action, but I do want to make sure that we're focused on some of the various ways that we've been able to produce these vaccines, and, and rightfully so because mRNA is a new technology. Um, it's, it's one that's been studied pretty in-depthly, but this will be uh, potentially the first vaccine on the market with mRNA technology. Uh, both Pfizer and Moderna are using the mRNA technology. Uh, so what's different about mRNA? Um, instead of injecting, say, a weakened virus um, into the body, um, that tell, this uses uh, uh, a pre-selected um, antigen um, coding instruction that tells your body how to make the antigen on their own. Um, it's sort of like writing down instructions for building a catapult to protect the castle. Instead of building the, uh, the catapults and delivering them to the castle, you're telling the inhabitants inside the castle how to build their own catapults to fend off invaders. Um, looking over at the, the viral vector vaccines, um, these use a little more known technology. Um, these, they use an adenovirus uh, to basically invade to find its way into your body and to produce the uh, spike protein to the body um, and, and the immune response is mounted based on that. So these are two very different technologies, two different ways to go about it. Um, and that's why it's important, again, these, are, these vaccines should not be mixed. They should not be uh, dose one given with one vaccine, dose two given with a different one. And there are different pros and cons, but at the end of the day, both of these strategies um, have been able to produce vaccine at a much quicker rate than some of our um, older technologies, which require growth media such as eggs uh, or other cells. 
I think it's important to look at, at, at how these are going to be allocated and how the information is going to flow out um, to each of the uh, provider sites. Um, the CDC, Operation Warp Speed, and other groups have, have come together to form uh, an allocation process and a distribution in a phased approach. A lot of this is due to the fact that early on, the supply will not meet the demands of, of the population. And in order to safely and effectively vaccinate the populations, uh, they do have to have a framework to be able to vaccinate uh, certain populations first. And so they've rolled out what's, what's shown here as a phase three um, approach of uh, reaching those that are most critical to the population. And I'm going to show a little grid here on the next slide. Uh, but the, the first phase is really focused on where they can get the best bang for the buck. And, and it, you know, initially you would think it would be only the high risk population uh, from a, from a disease perspective, but as, as we'll kind of work through the framework on the next slide, you'll see that that is not necessarily the case. There are other factors that go into this phased approach. The other thing that I just want to point out with this slide is these phases do not have uh, um, a solid timeline uh, associated with them. And that's partly due to the fact that we don't know when different uh, vaccines are going to be approved. So if phase one, uh, the supply is not meeting demand and we only have one supplier in this phase, um, it, phase one is going to drag out a little bit longer. If we have two or three uh, suppliers that are approved and bringing vaccine to the market, uh, phase one becomes a little bit uh, shortened and phase two can begin earlier where, where we can start tackling more of the general population. So Jason, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so I just want to weigh in here just briefly, and, and I warned um, Jason and Karen both that I would probably interrupt them periodically as they're going through their deck um, as we get some questions and even had some pre-webinar questions that I wanted to address. And so this is one of the questions that comes up um, understandably so, but if you look at the people who are in phase 1A and 1B, the frontline healthcare workers and people at highest risk, and even if the vaccine was available um, in December, although it looks like it'll probably be more January, the logistics involved in all this, which Jason's gonna go through here in just a minute, um, means that you'd still be sometime in the second quarter of 2021 before you even start talking about phase two. And then depending on how that rolls out, also depending on frankly, how many people are willing to get a vaccine, um, I'm speculating at this point, but there's a lot of other um, experts across the country who are doing the same thing, that you're still looking at Q3, Q4. It's the end of 2021. By the time you get into that phase three, it may even spill over into 2022. So not to sound like Debbie Downer here, but I do think there needs to be some um, setting of expectations about how this is going to play out. And now that Moderna may be, like I said, releasing um, interim results next week, and Jason's going to go through this, the logistics are quite challenging. So it's not just the vaccine and the EUA approval from the FDA, but it's the cold chain, it's the logistics of trying to do all this. Um, and so my perspective, and it's been um, my perspective over the last couple months, which is consistent with others that I've um, heard and, and read is that this is really um, anywhere from an 18 month to a 20 month 
process um, to get everyone, or at least everyone who's willing to take the vaccine vaccinated. So I think this is a very important slide. Um, and to Jason's point, we don't know exactly how that's gonna play out, um, but it's not a quick fix. It's something that's gonna take quite a bit of time um, to get us to the point where people are comfortable that the majority, or, or like I said, those who are willing to get vaccinated, the majority of them are vaccinated. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there, Jason, before you proceeded. Yeah, I think I think you hit a lot of good points there. Um, obviously, as, as we kind of went through the phase three vaccine um, options that were out there, um, you mentioned the, the two dose, the cold chain requirement. Um, there are obviously ones in there that, that would fit better in different bottles. For example, once we get to a general population, uh, it, it, it may be preferred to have a one dose series that is in a refrigerator. Um, thinking even outside of the U.S., um, how are our, our third world countries and other areas going to be able to manage um, an ultra cold frozen uh, supply chain? So there's a lot of considerations there as we kind of move through this. Um, I think with phase one, looking at healthcare providers, um, it's very manageable having an ultra cold um, where we can, we can vaccinate in tranches. But as we get into more of a, a onesie, twosie vaccination schedule of the general population, it's gonna be very hard to time out the cold chain requirements and, and, and ensure that we're getting through um, uh, the two dose series and making sure patients are coming back. So there are some, some uh, general advantages as you kind of look at some of those candidates that are out there. So we mentioned the framework, and I, I think that this is really important to kind of understand how the framework was developed and understand how they came to the decision to start with frontline healthcare workers and then move on through different populations. So the National Academy of Medicine really developed the framework um, to help policymakers plan for the equitable allocation of the vaccine, knowing that there would not be enough um, right out of the gate. Um, uh, the National Academy of Medicine um, shared this with the Advisory Committee of, um, on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, um, and they're using this uh, in conjunction with the results from the clinical trials to really roll out this process. But if you look at uh, the defined groups on the left, you've got things like uh, high-risk healthcare workers, first responders, um, all the way down to um, uh, children and, and those uh, K through 12 teachers, for example. So there's well-defined groups that they look at. And then they looked at four criteria. Um, the first is, um, you know, looking at the uh, risk of acquiring the infection. Second, the, severe, the severity of morbid, morbidity and mortality. Third, the risk of a negative societal impact. And then fourth, the risk of transmitting the infection to others. So from a healthcare perspective, uh, if you're a healthcare worker, you're high in three of those four categories. And your inability to take care of others because of your own sickness, uh, as well as your risk of transmitting the disease is, is very high. Um, and it gives a good framework to understand how we came to that. I think as the vaccine begins to roll out, education to um, the general population on this framework uh, will be needed because I think there will be some questions that arise 
uh, from this framework and how it was uh, was divvied up. Moving on to the distribution of it, um, you know, McKesson uh, holds a government contract as the sole distributor for COVID-19 vaccines. Um, but I will point out that Pfizer, because of their ultra cold chain requirement, um, will go through a, a direct shipping process uh, where it'll come directly from Pfizer to the provider. Um, this, this diagram is, is a nice complete diagram kind of showing how the distributor will also work with partner depots that are logistically placed throughout the country. Uh, these, these partner depots are gonna be um, very important, especially in the two-dose vaccine series uh, where large amounts of storage will need to take place. These partner depots have set up uh, freezer farms um, around the country to help hold uh, the, the vaccine uh, until the time for the second dose to be delivered is needed. Um, this is a, a key to this is because not everyone has ultra cold freezers. Not everyone's going to be able to manage the cold chain for a long period of time. And we'll get into a little bit of what Pfizer is doing to help with the cold chain requirements. Uh, but keep in mind, Moderna also has a frozen cold chain uh, that needs to be taken into account. Uh, this also shows the ancillary supplies. I know there's many supply chain folks on the call, uh, and it's important to call out that each of these vaccines, as, as uh, orders are placed, uh, the similar ancillary supplies will be delivered in a one-to-one -one ratio. So for every 100 vaccines that are delivered, 100, uh, enough to treat 100 patients of ancillary supplies will be delivered as well. In many cases though, you may see an ancillary supply kit come at a different time than the vaccine itself. The, the manufacturers as well as the distributors have tried to time this up in a way that it would arrive at about the same time, but keep in mind that these will arrive at your facilities at, at different times. Taking a further look into the ancillary kits, um, you can see that they're gonna ship with enough to um, administer uh, 100 vaccines with 105 syringes, 105 needles, 210 alcohol prep pads, and some minimal PPE as well as vaccination cards for patients. Uh, for vaccines that do require additional mixing, um, they will come with a separate diluent kit so just to confirm, you'll get an ancillary kit for every vaccine. For those that require additional mixing, you'll get an additional diluent kit. And that diluent kit will include separate needles, syringes, and alcohol pads. For facilities um, wondering what else you'll need, uh, there's a list here, including sharps, containers, gloves, bandages, and additional PPE based on your hospital policies for the Pfizer vaccine, uh, the handling of dry ice is likely expected. So the additional ordering of cryogenic gloves, a dry ice shovel or scoop, eye protection, and possibly even a storage container for dry ice uh, should be on your list of things to uh, obtain. 
looking at the Pfizer candidate, because it is being shipped separately because of its ultra-cold um, requirement, I did want to drill into this one a little bit because there are uh, significant supply chain um, impacts here. We were on a call with FedEx a few weeks ago, and one of their global leaders in supply chain made the comment that the distribution of these vaccines is the hardest thing they've faced since World War II. And, and uh, I thought that was very impactful. And as you kind of drill into this, you, you get a good understanding as to why. But Pfizer is creating their own shipping container uh, that does allow for some short-term storage as well. The diagram on the right shows the dimensions as well as um, how this will work. The vaccine in the middle of the box will be protected through some dead space uh, where, where the dry ice will be, as well as a dry ice pod that will sit on top of it to maintain uh, proper freezing temperatures. Additionally, within the Pfizer box, they have uh, technology built into this with GPS tracking as well as a, a thermometer to ensure cold chain integrity. These shippers can hold up to just under 5,000 doses. That's their maps in each shipper. Uh, they can hold a minimum of one tray, which would equate to about 975 doses or 195 vials. And then just a reminder that each of these vials is a multi-dose vial um, that uh, for Pfizer specifically is a five-dose um, vial that does require reconstitution. Looking at the storage instability, um, this is where some of the trickiness uh, occurs. And so you can see we've talked about the negative 60 to negative 80 storage, and that can be stored for up to six months at that temperature. In that thermal shipper that Pfizer has produced, um, it can be stored for up to 15 days. In that scenario, you will have to replenish dry ice three times. The first time within 24 hours of delivery and then every five days thereafter. Uh, Pfizer also wants these uh, shippers returned to them. So these are not things that we can uh, redistribute to our facilities. Uh, we have asked them that question. And then once it's moved to the refrigerator for thawing, it can be uh, maintained in the, in the refrigerator for up to five days. Once it's thawed at room temperature, you should take at least 30 minutes to thaw. The recommended time is two hours. But once it's thawed and uh, diluted, you can have it at room temperature for six hours before administration. Anything beyond that, uh, the product is expired. You cannot retroactively move the product back into a fridge or freezer for longer shelf life. Uh, for sake of time, I'm just gonna show the, the Moderna one. It's a little bit more simple, but the, the time, um, the timing of that is very similar with six months in the freezer, seven days in the fridge, and uh, six hours at room temperature. So as we think about how do we message to um, you know, our providers and patients, there are a lot of questions that are still out there. A lot of information that is, is real and a lot that is not real. And I think uh, being equipped to be able to talk about that is, is very important. And I know that Karen's gonna touch a little bit more on the education aspects of this. 
but I didn't want to just bullet point out the, the importance of knowing how we've been able to expedite approval and development of these. Um, you know, and that is, we've, the coronaviruses are not new. We've had significant study with SARS and MERS. Gene sequencing processes have been very impactful as part of this. Uh, we've developed new vaccine technologies, which we've talked about with spike proteins and viral vectors, uh, as opposed to the longer flu vaccine routes of, of weakened viruses. The government support and funding has allowed manufacturers to de-risk their manufacturing of these drugs and be able to uh, do the trials in parallel with less risk. Um, not cutting corners, but at the same time, uh, reducing the impact financially on these organizations to be able to uh, put themselves out there on the line to do those uh, in, a, in a more condensed format. And then lastly, the shortened testing timeline, the, the use of new technologies, the need to not grow these in cells and animals in some situations. Um, these are all uh, points that we should be talking about um, as, as to reasons we've been able to expedite the vaccine. It's not cutting corners, but it's uh, through advancements in technology and again, Operation Warp Speed, the, the greatest minds in research and development today working together uh, to be able to produce this result. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Trust's Candid Conversation podcast. Please visit healthtrustpg.com slash the source slash candid dash conversations to listen to more episodes of our podcast and visit the Health Trust education page at education.healthtrustpg.com for more information on COVID-19, vaccines, and vaccine distribution.